Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwar Deterrence Center. Our host is Dr. Adam Laufer, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The ANWA Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of NucleCast. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have, as always, a great guest, Zach Callenborn, who is an adjunct fellow at the Center for Strategic International Studies, and he's also a fellow at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. Zach, welcome to NucleCast. Thanks for having me. So you wrote a, a really interesting and provocative article in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist that came out January 10th of this year. The article, Why a Nuclear Weapons Ban Would Threaten Not Save Humanity, has generated a number of replies in the bulletin and a great deal of discussion by the commentariat. Now, for the audience, could you open us by offering a summary of the arguments that you made in the article? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the folks who pushed for nuclear abolition, including the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, have long argued that the reason we should do so is because nuclear weapons present a existential threat to humanity. And in fairness, I think there is some basis that, you know, we at least have seen articles in highly reputable scientific journals highlighting how in the case of a nuclear war, there would be so much fire and damage that it would kick large, huge amounts of uh, black carbon and soot into the atmosphere and basically create a global cooling effect that would make uh, drastically lower global temperatures, making it very hard to grow crops, leading to you know mass starvation and stuff like that. Um, so I think there is some concern there. But that said, the problem is that um, there are a range of existential threats that uh, we face as humans, not just nuclear weapons, but you know extreme biological uh, weapons or just plagues in general. Uh, planet killer asteroids, artificial intelligence, uh, super volcanoes. There's a you know, broad array of uh, challenges that we have there. And the problem is that if we get rid of nuclear weapons, uh, we potentially go back to great power war. You know, we know that nu- nuclear weapons have at least placed a cap. They haven't necessarily completely prevented, but at the very least, they've pl- put a cap on the scale of a major conflict where, you know, if the United States and China are going to war, um, at some point they're going to recognize that, like, the nuclear weapons are going to come out, and they're going to come out well before we get to, you know, Washington falling and all of the United States or, you know, Beijing falling and all of China going away. Um, and so they're going to place a limit how bad that becomes. The problem is that if we remove that cap and we go back to, you know, a case of World War One, World War Two, where we have these globe-spanning conflicts that don't just bring in the United States and China, they bring in, you know, our friends and allies all across the world from, you know, Japan, South Korea, potentially bring in, you know, Germany, France, all those sorts of things. Um, it potentially worsens uh, a wide variety of those other existential risk scenarios. And it does through at least uh, four different mechanisms. So, you know, the first problem is that, you know, if we have a, a world war where, you know, most of the world, or at least, you know, some of the significant powers are fighting and potentially even being destroyed, what does global cooperation look like? You know, we know that uh, after World War II, that 
World War II was the major impetus for the creation of the United Nations, um, the creation of NATO, uh, the International uh, International Panel on Climate Change, uh, the UN Environmental Protection Agencies, and a wide range of uh, international organizations. So if you have like some of the main pillars of that global order collapsing, you know, that ability to cooperate to address any of those other problems, that potentially goes away. And then secondly, the challenge is that, you know, when you have such conflict, it's going to create significant damage. So the ability and the resources that might be normally potentially given to existential risk issues would be devoted to other areas. You know, we could imagine what happened after uh, World War II and you know, Marshall Plan to rebuild all of Europe, you know, billions of dollars that went into that. So if that's happening, are we really, say, resourcing, uh, protecting biological labs that might, you know, leak a deadly agent into the environment or, you know, taking focusing on, say, planetary defense? Are we supporting NASA and their work to redirect asteroids? And even if we support it somewhat, you know, the there may be limits on how much we can actually do because, you know, there are so many other global challenges that we have to um, deal with. Uh, the third potential is that the some of the infrastructure that's used to mitigate some of these other existential risks might be damaged and destroyed as in the process of the fighting. So when NASA launched its planetary redirection test a few years ago, it did so. And, oh, basically, this is, you know, uh, where they were practicing what it would be like to actually move an asteroid that's, you know, headed our way and potentially in a collision course with the with the Earth. Um, sort of practicing, you know, what would that look like? They launched it from a Space Force base in Santa Barbara, California. That's also happened to be home to um, Space Force's like operational command and control for uh, Space Forces during an actual war. So if we are in a major war with the United States and China, uh, you know, would China would absolutely have a good justification to target and destroy that base, which also means potentially damaging and destroying the infrastructure needed for, you know, that type of asteroid uh, redirection test. And then finally, the concern is that, you know, even if we manage somehow to get to that global zero and, you know, we get rid of all nukes, whatever, uh, everywhere, and then, you know, over the next several years, that World War III does break out because nuclear weapons did, you know, place a role in deterrence, you potentially have a significant cascading and unstable uh, reproliferation where folks realize like, oh, nuclear weapons, we're actually pretty good here. Let's go build them. And I think that's a significant concern because, you know, even if I think, you know, nuclear weapons can be stabilizing with, you know, mature powers who've done all the various, you know, safety testing, have appropriate doctrine and man crisis management, stuff like that. If you're potentially having a whole bunch of states very quickly rearming and developing these nuclear weapons all over the place, at least in the short term, that's potentially, you know, very unstable as, you know, they're still working through all the implications of what nuclear weapons uh, mean for them. Um, so I'll conclude by saying, you know, I think there, the challenge that there's multiple um, existential risks that uh, humanity faces, that if we go back to a World War II scenario of great power conflict, um, our ability to address and mitigate those uh, risks effectively would potentially drastically reduce. And so by banning nuclear weapons, we end up increasing the threat to humanity, not saving it. Yeah, it's um, I, I have to admit the arguments you're sort of your four pillar arguments were ones that I had not really thought about before in terms of why do we or how do I justify the existence of a nuclear arsenal. So I, I found them really interesting arguments uh, to to make. And, in, you know, in terms of somebody who doesn't want to fight 
uh, you know, another great power war and one that now is truly global because of, you know, the technologies that allow nations to reach out and touch each other are ones that, you know, as in World War One and World War Two, where the United States largely escaped those wars, the effects of those wars, that wouldn't that will never happen again. Uh, you know, we we've talked in detail about how the Chinese will, you know, they'll use cyber attacks. They they might, uh, you know, take out space assets. Uh, they'll essentially try to make us deaf and blind, you know, early in a conflict so that we can't deploy forces, so that we can't see and hear and effectively maneuver to fight. And, and some of the implications of those, and I think this is in part of what you, you know, you're in some ways talking about is, you know, there's there's the second and third order effects. So, for example, like uh, PNT, navigation and timing. I don't think most people realize that without PNT, which is provided by GPS, there is there's no ATM machines that work, or they don't realize that power transmission systems are dependent upon PNT to transmit power across lines in the appropriate time and fashion. And, and so, you know, you, you risk losing power and then what happens when there is no power. And so these kind of second and third order effects that would come as a result of a great power war, I'm not sure that the advocates of nuclear abolition have really sat down and said, okay, if we get rid of nukes, and the, we do have a great power war because I, I think, as you rightly point out, there's something about nuclear weapons that make them different and cause adversaries to be more risk averse. I'd, I've never seen anything that says, OK, we've we've looked at all the second and third order effects. And yes, we think they're worth the risk of getting rid of nuclear weapons. Have you. As, as you've seen people respond to your article and, you know, some of it's been in writing, some of it's probably been email or phone calls or discussions. Has anybody talked to you and said, you know, you know, I think you're wrong because these, these second order effects that you talk about biological agents, you know, whether uh, uh, environmental stuff, it's all worth the risk. And we've thought about that risk and it's worth it. Have you heard any, has anybody ever made that argument either now or in previous arguments? Yeah, so there's a, a little bit of argument um, to that effect that I've heard. You know, so uh, in one of the response pieces, uh, a broad group of nuclear abolitionists um, argued that basically by the, through the process of getting to uh, global zero, we'll basically have to build global cooperation um, and the global cooperative systems anyway um, and build that sort of trust. Um, I kind of interpret them that as them saying, like, we would basically solve all war before getting to nuclear abolition. That might be a little bit disingenuous, but that's at least how I think they're where they're heading it with it, at least, you know, significantly reducing it through these other mechanisms. 
Um, I think the other pushback that I see that's uh, somewhat more compelling is that uh, it might actually be a good thing to get rid of the global cooperative system that, you know, maybe there is a more effective system out there. You know, certainly uh, there's plenty of distrust already with like the United Nations and other things and people wondering, like, is this all that effective? Are there better options out there? So, you know, an argument might be that like, okay, you know, going back to great power war and sort of wiping some of that slate clean could end up being a good thing from a cooperative um, perspective. I mean, I think that's a, a somewhat more reasonable argument. I'm not sure I agree with it, um, you know, because the problem is, like, we can't necessarily make the assumption that whatever replaces our current system is going to be better. You know, it, there may be all sorts of issues that mean it doesn't work or doesn't work effectively. Um, even if it does work more effectively, there's going to be a time component to it, too, too, right? Like, it's not like it's going to, you know, we have great power war and the next day, like, all right, we solved all internet. We made the most wonderful international cooperative system there ever is. Um, you know, it's going to take potentially decades, maybe even centuries to figure out how to get that right. And so if a problem emerges before that actually happens, say, you know, we reach the singularity, someone creates an artificial super intelligence that's smarter than humans by in every way, by an order of magnitude. Um, and it, we create that before that, better system is established, well, we're potentially still screwed anyway, even if the, you know, better system um, ends up existing. Uh, but you made a good point there in, in the beginning that I want to expand on a little bit about the um, interconnectivity and what we've seen now, because I think that's a really important point. You know, a potential another pushback that someone could make is, um, okay, sure, we'll, we'll lose the great powers, um, we'll lose the United States and China, but, you know, uh, there's 100 some odd countries, others, you know, who have nothing to do with this you know they can take the lead and take the charge and maybe it's time for a group of small states to be the you know true global hegemons effectively or whatever you want to say but you know the issue you run into with that connectivity is that a great power war would massively affect all sorts of other states too you know because you have to think about like the global trade the global supply chain where you know, parts are and uh, components to all sorts of things, as well as goods are flowing all over the place. You know, we think about, you know, oil producing nations in the Middle East, you know, if they're not selling, if they don't have anyone to sell oil to, or there's massively reduced demand for it, that's going to have huge effects to their economic system, even if they aren't directly involved in the fighting itself, there's going to be huge amounts of effects like across the world. Yeah. And then you may, if you think, you know, I was trying to think as you, we've, been talking about this about the sort of the the dystopian movies that you know are that we've watched over the years whether it's you know i have a 11 year old daughter and she she recently read all of the um uh what is it called the mocking jay uh oh books, uh, hunger games. uh the hunger games books she's yeah. read all those and then now she's reading all the divergent books which you know these are two dystopian societies that have you know, reordered themselves after a war. And they're always reordered really in a comparative system that's worse than the one that we have. I mean, we we actually live in the freest, most prosperous system, you know, in human history. And so I'm I'm not really sure that we can necessarily say that one that comes afterward after, you know, World War Three will be a better one. That's that might be a a, a hopeful and uh you know, that might be bad statistical analysis to suggest that that's a probability. But I, I just, I also wonder for those that have been critical of your arguments, if you think about sort of defense allocation and you look, sort of look back historically at defense spending, 
there there is a regularity to great power wars uh, there that you know they ha- happen with the frequency across centuries and those great power wars i mean you kill millions but you destroy so much built up wealth it's a waste of wealth to fight those wars and then to try to rebuild societies and so i wonder if folks who who would be critical of your argument have contemplated, like, for example, defense budgets, great power wars. If you look at, you know, subsequent to 1945, defense budgets have been a a lower percentage of gross domestic product than they were in the century or so before for the U.S. and other countries. So we spend less on defense. And then when we and if you look at innovation, so your defense spending goes down and then that that frees up, uh, you know, funding resources to then allocate to go build things like smartphones and electric cars and, you know, private rockets to space. And, and so I don't want to give any of that stuff up. And my fear is that if, if we get rid of nuclear weapons, that all that funding that we've, you know, enjoyed that makes our lives, you know, quite nice here in the United States, that that may be reallocated to defense spending because we're fighting the Chinese or we're fighting whomever else we may be fighting, which I would prefer not to do. And, and, and I'm curious, have critics, do they talk about that? Do, do they talk about any of that? Because one of the things I do hear them say is we're going to build more conventional capability. And if, if we get rid of nukes, and when we build that conventional capability, that'll offset the nukes. And it's like, well, you realize that that's a lot and it's very expensive to build that. So we're going to all the sort of social programs you you personally like, those have to go away to build this conventional stuff to replace the nuclear stuff. That's interesting. Um, I haven't heard that. Um, my guess is that um, among the main nuclear abolition crowd, um, that probably wouldn't be a, 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 an argument they would like to go with um, because I think they would end up basically just a lot of them would end up just saying, well, you know, I think our defense budget is adequate as is and probably way too high since we're spending, you know, I can't remember the current number, like you know, what, 700 billion, something like that. Um, and that's already plenty. So maybe we should also reduce some of that, you know, conventional um, conflict, you know, and I, and I think the way that at least many of them see it is more that um, the increase in global cooperation, like they see it as like, you know, the classic liberalist international relations argument where, you know, the United Nations alliances, complex interdependencies between economics and society will be sufficient to reduce that risk of conflict. So I, I think they, through that mechanism, they don't see as much of an issue of, you know, rapid increasing conventional defense spending. But that said, you know, if that turns out to be wrong and that, you know, we do see, this type of conflict at that extensive scale break out, I think we could reasonably expect that. And uh, not just spending too, but potentially whole of society, you know, issues like we don't have a draft at the moment. But if we were in a literal, you know, fight for our lives against China, would that change? I I don't know. But I I think that would be, you know, very serious um, and open question. 
Um, and then also just to briefly uh, touch on the point that you made that you opened with about sort of these dystopian uh, stories, um, you know, I, I 100% agree. Um, I mean, I think part of that is, you know, uh, dystopias tend to sell more books. You know, it's not a very <laughs> not a very compelling story to live in Wonderland. But, you know, I, I do think that's a, you know, an important point that, like, we don't know what's happening and what might happen. You know, uh, we know that, like, when societies break down, things get really bad really quickly on multiple levels. You know, I remember um, I was a part of some of the volunteer groups that were helping out after the Afghan uh, withdrawal of uh, bringing refugees out. I helped them only in a minor way. I don't you know. Other folks were uh, massively wonder more wonderful and amazing than I, I, uh, I ever could be. But, you know, one of the lessons that I took away from that was like just how extreme some of the suffering that happens when countries and governments break down. It's horrible. You get, you know, people literally hunting one another, trying to kill each other. You have people, you know, living in uh, sheds in the mountain because they're, you know, fleeing, had to flee for their lives without access to food or water or anything like that. They have no resources. They have no support system, um, any of that. Um, so the point being is like, you know, if we have that great power war where we have these societies break down where, you know, what happens if the United States government falls apart? Like even just within the United States, like the ability to do much of anything, um, would be incredibly problematic. Um, so the idea that like what's going to emerge um, out of that is going to be necessarily better, I'm skeptical about that. It might be, you know, I'll, I'll be optimistic. Maybe there's maybe there is a chance, but in the interim period, there's also very real potential for um, potentially even horrifying things. Uh, This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Anwar Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. Yeah, and, and your point about, you know, the elimination of nuclear weapons could ultimately lead to conflict and therefore a renuclearization that could be uncontrolled. I thought that was sort of a really interesting point because you're, and just as I think about it logically and sort of try to, you know, spitball that answer, it, to me, it seems right that in that burst for security that would come sort of at, at a waning point, or, you know, even perhaps even in the middle of a war, you would, people wouldn't necessarily even wait till the war was over. They would, in the midst of conflict, probably start trying to rearm to, to guarantee security. And it would be largely uncontrolled. And, you know, the use of nuclear weapons would be largely, you know, to be perceived as self-defense. And therefore, to me, it would be even potentially worse than, you know, a circumstance that we have now. And I, I wonder if maybe you could comment a little more on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, First of all, note there, that that is one area where I did get a little bit of pushback on there. Um, the like in the the, the uh, nuclear abolitionist response argued that uh, okay, we, that's true. That that's a risk, but potentially we need. Um, that's why we need like strong verification measures, and that'll help you know deter that from happening through a like robust international regime that'll do that. Um, and then also, you know, if there's only a hand, if a like a couple 
folks make a couple of nukes afterwards. Like, you know, that's not good, but, you know, it's not like the worst thing ever. Um, the other argument that I've heard is that uh, nuclear deterrence still might actually operate even post-abolition, that um, there might be some sort of virtual deterrence in which there's that potential for uh, nuclear weapons to be rebuilt and, and that potential fear that would, would still have a potential deterrent effect. Um, I think those are interesting arguments. Um, I don't find them terribly persuasive myself. I think it's po- certainly those things are possible, you know, but I think the challenge is that the if the international community is genuinely convinced that nuclear weapons were critical to, you know, prevent war, and I think a strong argument could be made that, like, if World War III breaks out right after nuclear abolition, like, okay, there's, you know, not necessarily, but there's probably a good uh, reason, uh, reasonable to assume that that's, uh, that that's the case. Um, you know, potentially have massive uh, uh, rearmament and renuclearization. And, you know, one of the things I think that we know, if you look at, like, the history of, like, the American uh, nuclear pro- program is, like, there's a lot of learning that's involved with really integrating and using these systems effectively. I think about, like, some of the early nuclear applications that we thought were wonderful ideas and realize maybe that's not a good idea. Like, you know, the Davy Crockett, like the, you know, basically nuclear bazooka where you have, like, a small uh, special operations team that, uh, you know, parachutes in to, you know, drop a nuke on, like, a critical bridge or something like that. And realize, eh, eh, maybe that's uh, not, 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 not the best idea there. Um, as well as, you know, making sure that you have, like, survivable and secure second strike um, capabilities. You know, we know that the Soviet Union, for example, in some of their early submarine doctrine, they made it uh, fairly easy for the United States to identify the location of some of their submarines. And so, like, there's been uh, statements that have come up uh, recently uh, in some of the archives that um, actually, for a while, the United States believed it actually could target and potentially destroy all Soviet nuclear submarines. Like, they weren't really hiding, but because of the, you know, ways that they were maneuvering and, their, and how loud they were, we were able to identify them. So, you know, point is, like, if we imagine that sort of global nuclear proliferation, um, you know, especially in that short term where folks are trying to relearn some of these lessons and integrate them, um, that's potentially a big concern. And uh, we know at least the basic knowledge of nuclear weapons, that's not going away. Even if you got this wonderful, amazing verification program, you still got to have the knowledge of nuclear weapons. Otherwise, what are you going to verify? How are you going to verify it? How would you even know that, like, this is a particular critical system? You have to have that knowledge. It's going to still be there no matter what. Well, and it's, you know, the great one thing that I've learned from doing this podcast is that uh, there is a much stronger tie between nuclear weapons and nuclear power than I had ever initially realized. That those the, the tie between the twos is really important. And then, you know, the other thing is you think about if we actually want to, you know, let's say solve climate change and stop any change of the climate, you, you know, you have to have nuclear energy as a major part of that. You, Solar and wind will never accomplish it. You have to have nuclear power. And to have nuclear power, you have to have the ability to split the atom and you have to have the ability essentially to make nuclear weapons. So you really can never, even if you wanted to, put the genie back in the bottle while accomplishing all the other sort of idealistic things that are on, you know, the menu. And that's, you know, I I don't really hear much discussion about that. I sort of hear a sort of a writ large dismissal of all things nuclear, but I don't really hear actual solutions that can be plausibly explained. I hear lots of idealism. 
but not lots of, okay, here's how you would do it. Let me give you a step-by-step, you know, program. And I want to see something real, something tangible, something that can be done. Yeah, that's, I think that's a great point about sort of that interdependence between like climate change and like nuclear energy there. Um, of course, it's a slightly different argument than the abolition, but, uh, you know, it's certainly an, an interesting um, argument. And, and we see that, you know, of course, playing out right now very directly in the case of uh, Saudi Arabia, where, you know, as part of the consideration between the uh, potential peace deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia is asking for civilian uh, nuclear power, which, of course, you know, the Biden administration is rightly concerned that like, OK, what, what about the proliferation risk? there that that might entail um even though like it's not like you know it's there are certainly uh it's not like a one for one like okay you have a nuclear power plant that means you can immediately make a nuclear weapon obviously a little bit more complication there but there is definitely that overlap there in terms of that knowledge and some of the equipment and some of the like technical skills um that are needed to um certainly uh to uh deal with those sort of issues so yeah i think that's an important issue and i and i think uh, folks are, I think, at least that one are starting to grapple with, um, but I'm not sure they've like it, it's been how extensive it is. You know, I, I have seen like some climate activists increasingly be supportive of nuclear power, um, but either way, it does I think illustrate um, you know the key point that I'm trying to make in my article is that when we're thinking about some of these significant existential risks from climate change, nuclear weapons to AI to biology to supervolcanoes, we need to think about these interdependencies between them um, in every direction, you know, where solving one problem, one of these problems might make another worse. Uh, there may be opportunities to solve both at the same time, or there might be things that's, you know, make things at all levels uh, uh, worse in many different ways, like great power war. Yeah. So it's that time in the show where I like to bring out Bob the genie. And as I rub my magic lamp, Bob, of course, grants you, but only today, three wishes. Now they have to be in relation to the topics we've been discussing. So no world peace, no great wealth, you know, none, you know, none of that. Uh, you, you can't turn your hair blonde or brown again. Uh, you, none of that stuff. But you uh, you can wish for anything related to our discussion. So, Zach, number one. Um, that's a good question. So, I, I mean, obviously, my nor- my first one would be wish for a million wishes. But, you know, you ought, it kind of sounds like I, I can't do that one. Um, but, you know, I think my first one, like on topic, would be that um, that we had a perfect, well, since it's a wish and we can kind of do things that aren't going to actually happen for real, um, have a perfect understanding of the, uh, how nuclear weapons create existential risk and create and generate that soot, and particularly um, how much and to what degree, because there is a lot of uncertainty uh, about that. You know, so, uh, papers have gone back and forth. People have looked at like the exact same scenario and come to very different conclusions. Um, some saying like, you know, the, the climate effects of like a limited nuclear war between India and Pakistan would be very significant, and devastating. And then another saying like, actually, it'd probably be like, you know, like kind of nothing, um, you know, and having a perfect understanding of what those effects would be, how much soot is actually generated, how much uh, would go into the atmosphere, as well as like how much the cooling effects would be. Like that would be my first wish that we could actually understand, like have a really solid understanding. And I'll say perfect because it's imaginary. Um, and that way, you know, we can have a common baseline to, you know, talk about at what point do these risks start manifesting. Um, and then we can talk about, you know, where does the where does the line need to be? If it turns out these risks are massively overblown, then, you know, maybe don't worry so much about the, the risk of nuclear weapons. If it turns out like, oh, no, that's actually a huge issue, then, you know, maybe we need to worry about it. Um, I think the second wish and um, 
is that I think I would wish that we could right size our nuclear arsenal to whatever is the appropriate minimum needed to deter. Um, now I know we disagree on that, but this is this is my wish. So we'll, we'll, we'll sure it's yeah. gonna be my wish. Um, <laughs> where like what is the actual threshold that we need to prevent that uh, that war between China? Um, and again, since it's a wish that that minimum threshold is sustainable over time and actually knowable, um, in reality, I think it's going to be really difficult to do that because, you know, there's a myriad of fact factors that affect, you know, nuclear deterrence from new technologies to missile defenses, to anti-submarines, to leader decision calculus, to, you know, supporting allied governments. But again, this is a wish we're going to, I'm going to say that, you know, the, um, that we make that, uh, significantly better. Um, and then I guess. My third wish, mm, that's a toughie. I suppose I'll go with um, that the the broader global community uh, recognizes and pays a uh, high priority to addressing some of these existential risks. Not necessarily the sole or the most important priority. You know, we got myriad of issues to deal with from, you know, as I said, like you know, refugees in Afghanistan to... Um, you know, people in poverty and all sorts of other horrible things. But, you know, I would at least wish that the uh, global community, including the United States, China, and others, would put existential risk writ large as a high priority and establish new cooperative mechanisms to address uh, all of these risks and think through some of these interdependencies that we talked about and mitigation efforts and, you know, take appropriate actions to address and reduce them. Yeah, that that last part, I think, is, you know, as I was thinking about your wishes and what would I wish differently, the the idea of understanding the second and third order effects, because I often see people think in zero sum game, you know, zero sum terms, where if I do this one thing and let's say, you know, if, if I kill Hitler, then there is no World War Two and everything works great. But without realizing that, you know maybe Mussolini starts World War II and it's just as bad, or maybe Stalin starts, you know, so it's those, those, those implications for, you know, making one change doesn't necessarily mean everything else stays the same. And thinking through what are those ties, like you said, the interdependencies, the second order effects, I would love to see a lot more time spent on trying to understand those and to stop thinking that anything is zero sum because it usually isn't. Yeah, absolutely. I a hundred percent agree. And in my view, I think that's a place where both deterrence and arms control advocates should agree. Like, cause like all of us want a better understanding and an objective understanding, or at least we should now there might be exceptions uh, in, in some cases, but you know, I think all of us want a better understanding because like, I think all of us really are just trying to make a better, safer world. And we just have different ideas about how to do that. So if we can get a better understanding of, you know, those larger effects, those interdependencies, um, you know, where are the opportunities to make things better? Where are the real risks? I, I think that's a great thing. Yeah. Zach Callenborn, thanks for joining us on NucleCast. Thanks for having me. And thanks to you, the listeners, and we'll see you on the next episode. Great interview with Zach Callenborn. Uh, we always have a good time in our discussions. You know, he's a sort of a creative, innovative guy. You know, he sees things a little differently than I do. And that just sort of, you know, it's iron sharpening iron. So I, it's always a great, great opportunity to talk with Zach. And, and you know, the article he wrote was, I, you know, it was a brought up some really good ideas that I had not thought about before. Like, hey, if you make the world safe for great power war, 
how are you going to solve climate change? How are you going to spend money on biological weapons prevention? How are you going to spend money? And those are all valid, val you know, valuable ideas to think through because, you know, world wars are expensive and destructive and they distract you from other things. And it, you know, so it was a good point he made. And, and, you know, some of the criticism I, I've sort of thought, I just had to shake my head. So uh, hopefully you enjoyed the conversation. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrent Center, a 501c3 that seeks to educate key decision makers, stakeholders, and the public to ensure a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Crunkall. Help us grow our followers by sharing it and follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NuclearCast.